Vic Ferrari. Wow. Wow, did I enjoy talking to Vic. New York police officer, 20 years. Uh, he's retired now. That was 15 years ago. He's written five books. His, his latest book, I really, really enjoyed. Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate. The stories from this gentleman are absolutely incredible. And the kind of link between us, my parents uh, met in Queens, uh, and I have cousins in, in the Bronx and Throgsneck. Well, Vic grew up in Throgsneck, and there's a very good chance that we bumped into each other. I would spend summers there. Uh, just incredible what we talked about. He talks great stories about like fireworks, what fireworks were like as a kid. And um, his book goes over so many very, very, really cool stories like with BB guns and Catholic school and, and, and pornography and alcohol and just the stories. And then we get into other stories with, when he was a police officer. He, he was called on at 911. He was there for Crown, uh, Crown Heights riots. Um, the stories he has, he was in narcotics. He was in auto theft for 10 years as well. He, he was responsible or one of the main actors in one of the international crime uh, syndicate cases. How he describes that is absolutely incredible. I'd love to have Vic back on. Uh, really enjoyed his conversation. Uh, I know you will as well. It's just um, full full of stories. Wait till you hear some of these stories from his, his time in, in, in NYPD. Absolutely incredible. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Joey Pins. People ask me, how did I lose 130 pounds? The quick answer is always discipline. I started my business, wasn't paying attention to my health, was eating too much, you know, drinking too much sweets. My daughter was born. Next thing I know, I'm pre-diabetic, I have hypertension. I knew something had to change. Discipline. I, like many of you, have faced many challenges in your career, in your family, in your life, in your faith. How did you attack them? How did you approach them? How did you solve them, hopefully? It all had to have some degree of discipline. I'm also asked, how did you found and start a tech business that lasted over 25 years? Discipline. I was committed to it, enjoyed technology, didn't enjoy some aspects of it, but knew it was necessary. Discipline. Our podcast mission, how do we use discipline to better ourselves and society? Join me, please, as I talk to interesting people and discuss how they use discipline in their family and their passion and their careers and how it helped them. Our podcast vision, growth through learning from others. Joey Pins Discipline Conversations. It'll be light and serious. Join us, please. Thank you for consideration. Vic Ferrari, great, great pleasure. I, I really appreciate your time today. What's the, what's the greatest thing that you have now memory, something about being a, a New York City uh, detective, police officer? You know, you know, it's it's one of those things where now I'm retired 15 years and, you know, you, you start to look back on things. What, what, what's not lost on me is so from the small, from when I was a child, I always wanted to be a New York City police detective and I was able to accomplish this dream and I had a great 20 year career. I mean, you got your ups and downs. But ultimately, I had a great career. I did everything I set out to accomplish. And then after I retired, 
I'm lucky enough that I fell into writing books, a series of books about, you know, my former career. And it's enabled me to kind of live vicariously through myself. Mm. Yeah, I really enjoyed your 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 last book, The Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate. I mean, I I, I have to, you know, is how much is fiction? How much is, I mean, uh, is it? What, Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate? Yeah, the last one. Yeah, the last one. No, book. that's my childhood. I mean, I changed the names. Obviously, I don't, listen, when I set out to write these books, the two things I always said I, I didn't want to do was get anybody divorced. Right. or in trouble or embarrassed. So I, I do change the names and dates and I'll move things around a little bit. But if you're asking me if the, if I got chased out of a confessional by, by an angry priest, yes, I did. <laughs> yes, you and did. was there a lunatic with erectile dysfunction to try to blow up a gas station on his hands and knees, throwing lit matches into the stick tanks of a, of a gas station? Yes, he did. I mean, I grew up in the Bronx in, in the late 70s, early 80s. It was a different time. Like in yeah. my neighborhood... Nobody really called the police unless something was really out of control. Like if you were screwing around with the wrong guy's sister or you owed somebody money. I mean, somebody was going to visit you with an Abraham Lincoln mask and a baseball bat. So nobody really called the cops for anything. It kind of everything kind of like they policed themselves, which I found ironic that I went and became a member of the New York City Police Department. So my my parents met in Queens in, in in Flushing at College Point, and then I have cousins in Throgsneck. I we're up. about the same age. Yeah, that's where I grew up. I know it's all in the book. I mean, you know, you talk about your father, you talk about, and I, the whole thing about fireworks. I was there in the eighties. I spend summers there. It's the same thing. We buy them from these sketchy characters' houses. Yeah, and how old he, are you? If you don't mind me so asking, I'm fifty four. Okay, so you're two years younger than me. So yeah, we we probably, if you were visiting your cousins in Throg's Neck, we probably crossed paths. Absolutely. And the story is true. There was a mailman selling fireworks out of his little garage on Tremont Avenue. And, Tremont. you know, he'd come home from work in his mailman uniform and th- you'd have 20 boys who were like crows just lined up on his fence and, hey, you got bottle rocket. The guy's like, guys, just give me a break. And he'd come out with a beer and a cigarette hanging out of his mouth and he's selling fireworks and the cops are driving by. And it just was a different time. It really was. Fourth of July was just crazy. There was just fireworks everywhere. And we're, and the other, uh, um, the whole thing about, you know, how you, how you gathered it all and the whole thing about the pornography, you know, that <laughs> you got an inside track, you drove your moped over and you got that, you know, the screwed magazine and they're buying multiple and there's kids in your front, you know, whoever had the porn had a very, very, you know, tough job. You're not to let it go to anyone, but oh. you, you, you turned it into an entrepreneurial adventure. Yeah. Well, th- th- you know what it is that screw magazine, for those of you who don't know, was this publication, I think it was weekly, and um, it was like the size of the New York Times. It was it was thick, and it was uh, it had and it said screw on the front, and there was always an illicit picture, and there, you know, there were reviews of brothels and sex toys, toys and everything a 12, 13-year-old boy was fascinated with, but couldn't ask their parents. And I didn't want to buy it in my neighborhood because I didn't want to get caught walking down Tremont Avenue with a magazine that said screw. So what I would do is I would get on my moped and drive up to Westchester Square, which is right. like a hub where the, all the trains and the buses met. There was a little newsstand. No one was going to recognize me. Then no one would blink an eye at a 14-year-old. And I would buy sometimes 30 of these magazines, bring them back to my house, and then I was doubling the price right. and selling them to my friends. 
until that one faithful day where it spilled out and you were had a trail of them all <laughs> your moped and uh and when your mother kind of kind of caught on she my mother knew something was up because there right. were boys that I had had problems with right. or fights with or weren't coming to my birthday parties anymore and suddenly they were reappearing and hanging around my house on Thursdays at four or five o'clock and my mother's like how come so-and-so, I thought you didn't get along with him. And like I write in a book, what was I supposed to tell her? His money's as good as anybody else's. Yeah. And, and the scene, Vic, of, you know, going to work with your father and being <laughs> so happy about it. And it's a, he's a butcher. And the, 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 you depict a very mobbish type, you know, people getting hurt and people getting, you know, people mm -hmm. money and, and you were upset that you couldn't work. Your father said, look, this is not for you. And you were upset that you couldn't be with your father. It was a great scene. Yeah. Everybody asked me about that. Like my dad wasn't involved in organized crime. My dad was right. Irish. He was a butcher and he worked in a wholesale meat provider out in Queens, which was owned by the boys. And you know, it's, you know, as a kid, I, I was going there 12, 13 years old on a Sunday with him and I'd make chopped meat and sausage and I was a gopher there. And it was a large supermarket and there were rough guys hanging around there. And then you find out later on in life, it was mob owned and, you know, guys that got out of prison, they needed a W-2 form. So mm -hmm. they would put them there on the books that, you know, if a parole or probation officer asked, oh yeah, no, he works here. And uh, like I write in the book, one time I was going up second flight of stairs and a man came rolling down the concrete stairs all busted up and uh, he got caught shoplifting and they gave him the beating of his life. They put his hands in a vice. They broke his hands. And <laughs> I remember his mouth was blue. And later on, I go, Dad, why was his mouth blue? My father goes, oh, he said he was thirsty. So they poured a cup of paint down his throat. So that was it. My father said, you know, you're kind of getting old enough that you're starting to notice what's going on. I don't want you becoming friends with these people. That's it. You're done. Just, you know, get a job around the neighborhood doing something. And I was crushed. You know, I, I, you know, it's like, this was like a lot of fun with me going to work with my father on Sunday. It was a whole event and it got taken away from me. But in the reality was it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Mm. And the whole, you didn't want to go to Catholic school, but you know, you ended up going there and you were in one and you got, you had to get removed. You were some with a bad, kind of not the best person. And then you went to another one. And just the way you describe the teachers and the students, and it's just, you, you're, you're an excellent writer, Vic. Thank you. I appreciate it. When I got, I, you know, I got into writing out of boredom. I never took a journalism or creative writing class. It just was, I was retired. I was bored out of my mind and mm. the urging of friends and family. I started writing these series of police books. And then my brother Fredo, that's not his name, but I, I refer know, to my yeah. dim-witted younger brother as Fredo in my books yeah. because he does a lot of things like Fredo Corleone. Yeah. So he, you know, you should really write a book about our childhood. And I said, be careful what you wish for. I says, because there's going to be a lot of you in there. And he goes, I don't care. And I'll say that about my brother. He, he, he thought it was the greatest thing in the world. Really? Yeah, I think yeah, I, I heard an interview with you where he kind of comes in and out of your life even to this day. Yeah, it's it's and I end the book like that, like people often ask me because he shows up in my police books because my brother was a member of the New York City Police Department. And it's it's like I call him twice a month. His voicemail is always full. I can't leave a message. And then every six months, he'll call up and say, hey, do you got Ma's chocolate chip recipe, cake recipe? And I'm like, where you been? It's very difficult to maintain a relationship with him. It's his world. I just kind of visit it from time to time. But I love him anyway. Of course. And, and the, the, you know, your relationship with your mother and, you know, the one particular story, Vic, with the BB gun where she kind of, oh my goodness, with the 
friend with the single mother and uh i mean i don't want to ruin it for you know spoil alert for you know i want people to read it but it's just tremendous story and the way you lay it out it's done so well you know that was one of the scariest days of my life because mm. like i write in a book like how many fires was i expected right. to put out and i mean just bare bones i had a bb gun i was forbidden to have one we were playing a stupid game where my brother and his friends went in the backyard and i was a sniper shooting them in the backyard with you know in their football equipment <laughs> While I was doing it, I broke another kid's window and it just unraveled. You know, I mean, one kid to rat into his mother that I shot him with a BB gun. She comes over to my house. My mother intercepts this woman before she gets to my father. Then the neighbor's kid's calling up about his broken window. It's like, it was like, I guess that's where I learned how to multitask. That's right. Because it kind of aided me later in my NYPD career as a detective when you're handling multiple phone calls and different agencies and but yeah, I mean that was that was a wild day. That's still I still get nervous. Do you really? Oh yeah. Because, how many times do you have to apologize for the same thing you did? Because then the your your friend calls you and a stray BB went and hit something over there, and he was like, "My father thinks I did it." You had to go over there and try to correct that. I mean, you 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 learned at a young age really how to move things around, Vic. Yeah, and the funny thing about that story is so years later, I mean, it was actually towards the end of my NYPD career. I was in my early 40s. I was still living in the neighborhood. And my dad was talking to that the gentleman in the book whose window got wow. broken. And he, my father knew the story. I had told my father the story years later. And my father said, come here, tell Anthony the story about what happened. And he, he's like, I remember when you came over shitting bricks that you shot out my window. And we were laughing about it. And I says, yeah. We're all standing here like my dad and this guy is in their late 60s. I'm in my early 40s. We're laughing about it. I said, but I got to tell you, I'm still traumatized by that incident. Yeah, you write in the uh, you write in the book how, oh, wait, maybe I'm getting the story mixed up. I think this is the story with the stick ball in the front. You break a window and your father says, no more playing in the front. So you guys decide to play in the back. <laughs> yeah, I took a vacuum cleaner. Yeah, my father took my baseball bat, my stickball bat, right. and I took a, like an Electrolux vacuum cleaner snap together pipe, and I went in the backyard with Fredo, and we, you know, he was pitching in wiffle balls, sure. and the last swing, the Electrolux pipe disconnected, and it was like 2001 Space Odyssey. The thing tumbled end over end, went across, went across the, the backyard, and you know, like houses, the bathroom windows are always narrower. Right. I mean- it's even a more difficult of a shot. It went through this guy's window. It tore through his screen and went through his window. And the guy was on the bolt. So I'm just looking at it and I see the window open up and I hear, hey, so what does a kid do? You're not going to sit there and negotiate with a grown man after you broke his window. I ran back into the house and we hear the guy screaming and screaming. And my father's like, is there something you want to tell me before I go outside and see what this jerk off wants? And I'm like, I broke his window. And, you know, it just it just spiraled out. Of, I was always in trouble. Yeah, you were. Yeah, you were. Had to pay for it, and you were had to, you know, with allowance and the dynamic between you know your mother's Italian, your father's Irish, like you said, and uh, just the dynamic there. And uh, you went to Catholic school, but you make a point in your book by saying at the end that you know you don't want to bash anything, and you don't really kind of practice to this day. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a practicing Catholic, like I say. It's it's I. I I'm the first one every year when I go for my uh, World Trade Center screening results, 
When that packet comes in the mail, I make the sign of the cross. I get on in my knees and I pray before I open that thing up. You know what I mean? It's one of those things where I'm not a practicing Catholic. And, you know, I, I have prayed before. And sometimes God answers my prayers. And like my brother, sometimes it goes to voicemail. Mm. But, I, I, you know, I, I definitely believe in God. It's just, I don't know, it's just the drama that gets associated with it. People, people and, and policies tend to ruin things. Man, they certainly do. And I guess that's where we should go on. Then you become a, a New York City police officer. And let's just start with your story about 9-11. Sure. Um, I probably had about 13 or 14 years in when that, when that happened. That day, it was a Tuesday, and uh, my office was in the Bronx. I had arrested some guy for a couple of stolen cars with the VIN numbers changed. He was in Manhattan court. He was going to cooperate. So we were going to pull him out of jail that day with his attorney and the district attorney. We were going to hammer out an agreement to use him as a confidential informant. So I had to get down to Manhattan by 8.39 o'clock. I'm at, at my office at 7. I'm waiting on my sergeant. He's farting around. I'm like, come on, we got to go. We're going to be late. And uh, one of the cops from downstairs comes running up to our office and says, put on the television set. A plane hit the World Trade Center. So we put it on and we're watching it. And here comes the second plane, hits the, the second tower. So immediately everybody knew it was terrorism. They called from downtown. They said, everybody get in a uniform and stand by. And by 1, 1 in the afternoon, I mean, I was down there walking around. There really wasn't a plan. They just kind of marched us in there. They gave us these little, um, little bullshit paper masks that you get at Home Depot when you're going to demo your bathroom. And I mean... It was wild. I mean, it was like something out of a movie. So you had all this volcanic ash in the air and right. shit floating around. And the sunlight had difficulty getting through the particles. So the closer you got to ground zero, the more of like a twilight or a haze it was. But it was, wow. you know, one thirty in the afternoon. Um, the thing that I'll never forget is I think we came down Broadway. Thousands upon thousands of women's shoes you saw it in, 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 the, in, in the dust going down Broadway because you had all these women that worked in the financial district when they were fleeing, they just took their heels off and, and ran barefoot. Wow. So it was just, it was like things that like that, that stay with me. And when we got close to the pile, you saw a section of the facade of the building, which had come down thousands of feet and just embedded itself in the concrete. And I, I always say it was like that last scene in planet of the apes mm. when Charles Eston sees the statue of Liberty right. head on the beach. And he's like, what the, and it was just kind of like that. It was, I felt like a child, like, what is this? Like, what am I looking at? Like, how is this even possible? So we were down there from about 1.30 in the afternoon. They dismissed us about 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning. They told us, go home, get some rest, run your clothes through a washing machine. We'll have more stuff available for you tomorrow and, and be here, you know, go back to your command at 5.30. And I was doing like 12 hours, 12, 14 hour shifts down there for the first week. Then since I worked in the auto crime division, they pulled us out of there. And then when the debris started going out to the dump in Staten Island, they used us to, um, as they were pulling vehicles out of the debris, they were having us cut them open to make sure no one you know, had perished inside any of the vehicles. Mm. Wow. Wow. What a day. Incredible. And you, you also go on, you were, you, were, you were there for the Crown Heights riot as well correct yeah i worked the crown heights riots uh the crown heights riots were in 91 i worked the washington heights riots in 92 um 17 out of 20 years i worked um times square at new year's eve which can sometimes become a riot i worked the west indian day parade which is definitely a riot several times 
uh, during my career. So yeah, I've been involved in some heavy duty stuff. I mean, when, when those, I mean, the, for the, for those riots, I mean, you're there with the shield, you're there with the glass, the helmet. I mean, what, what how is it, how did, how do police prepare for that? I mean, I, I have no idea what that's like from well, your end. So the, before uh, Crown right, Crown Heights in 91 and 92, they, they really hadn't started really doing the training as far as, you know, putting us together with the shields. Basically, we call it hats and bats, hmm. helmets and nightsticks. So they'll say, okay, you're going to such and such hats and bats. So it just was, um, they were just flying us down to Brooklyn in vans and dumping us off on street corners and, you know, basically saying, have at it, like, don't let people burn down the buildings. You know, if someone's that out of control, make the arrest. But you don't want to tie too many guys up with arrest because then you start to pull guys off the street. You, you know what I mean? So it's kind of you're trying to more to maintain law and order than make arrests. You're trying to prevent things from getting burned down and broken. I mean, if someone's doing something that out of control, yeah, the cuffs come out. You know, uh, I was listening to some of your, you know, your interviews and you said something that really stuck with me. And it's. A lot of the NYPD police, they're not afraid of dying. They're more afraid of doing something wrong. Yeah, every every cop in every police department, that's the truth. More cops are afraid of getting getting in trouble or going to jail than getting killed. You don't huh. think, you know, it's funny. I never really thought about losing my life. Never. As I got older, towards the end of my career, it started to dawn on me. Like, you know, you know when you're young and stupid and, and the best cops are when you get when they get them young. There's a lot of guys that go into law enforcement. They were accountants. They, they worked as a manager in a store somewhere, you know, 28 to 32, 35 years old. Like, you know what? I want to be a cop. And they often there's a there's a hard learning curve because you know better. You know what I mean? You, you, you're not as flexible in your thinking when you're a young man or young woman. So they, they oftentimes they, they want to go into management right away because they're like, oh, shit, this, this isn't for me. You know what I mean? I better study study for the sergeant's exam because the clock is ticking on me. But, uh, yeah, more, more cops are afraid of, of, of getting in trouble than losing their life. You wouldn't take the job if you really thought you were going to lose your life. Right. Although it is a, a distinct possibility. Hmm. And you also talk about the first, you know, when you first get onto the job, how – you had to go to the mortuary. The command said you're going to see a lot of dead bodies, and you just depict the way you depict all this. Vic is uh, is incredible. You're just used to seeing it. Well, yeah, and the police. So we hire in bulk. So the New York City Police Department, at any given time, so if they're going to have a police academy class, a small police academy class would be 250 people, and wow. some of the larger classes are 2,500 people. Wow. I was in a mid-sized group. I got hired. I think it was 1,200. So they'll, so what they, at the time, I don't know what they do now, but at the time they would bring like two companies, which is about 50 or 60 cadets or recruits. And they would bring us down to Bellevue hospital. And in the basement of Bellevue was the morgue. And, you know, the only thing I knew about the morgue was on television, like an episode of Quincy, Mm. Remember Jack Klugman, Oscar became a medical examiner. And it was like one slab, one table. And there was Sam and they were talking. Well, Bellevue is a lot different. So Bellevue was like a Jiffy Lube. You go into the basement and there's like multiple slabs, right? Like eight, 10 slabs and they're cutting. It looks like a Jiffy Lube or a Midas muffler shop. And between each slab where they're doing an autopsy, remember when you were a kid in the old days, like in the produce stores, they had the produce scale hanging? Yeah. Same shit. They, you know, they use like the same tool they use to cut muffler pipe with steel, your catalytic converter. 
They saw the back of your skull. It's like a horror movie. They pull your face up to the front and they pull your brain out and weigh it. And they're cutting people open, weighing their organs. And there's some guy or woman there with a clipboard. Like, holy shit. You know, and the smell. I mean, I know it's refrigerated down there, but I mean, the smell is just, you'll never forget the smell of death. And uh, I remember there was an old time detective there with a medical examiner. There was some guy that was shot multiple times and duct taped or bound and gagged. Or, I don't remember, but I remember the ME. He's got this tool, looked like a, a needle nose pliers, and he's pulling bullets out of this guy and dumping him in a pan. And the detective's sitting there, you know, like eating his egg McMuffin. And he goes, what do you think? And then the medical examiner goes, suspicious suicide. And they're all laughing. You know what I mean? So I'm like, wow. I go, these guys definitely have a gallows humor. I so yeah, you do see a lot of death. Yeah, you say you, they actually put Vicks vapor, vapor rub on it to kind of get rid of the smell. And another story you told about somebody gave you advice to burn coffee grounds in a house. That way you don't smell it if there's a dead body in there. Yeah, if you, so, yeah. so if you if an old timer taught me that trick, so you go to an apartment or, or a residence and someone died. And after the detectives come and basically tell you, yeah, this is, you know, this isn't a crime scene. You know what I mean? You can start touching things. The first thing they tell you to do is rummage through the kitchen and see if you could find some coffee, put it in a pot and burn the pot. And the coffee, the smell of the burnt coffee will permeate the residence and it will, it'll mask the smell of death. Vic, please, please tell the story of the one officer who uh, found a dead person but wanted to leave the shift, didn't want to wait to, for the <laughs> for the. Yeah. So when someone dies in New York City, like in the street or in a residence, the police are called. The police do a preliminary investigation. EMTs or paramedics will come. They'll say, yeah, he's dead. Detectives will come. And then after that, you still got to wait for the medical examiner to arrive. And then the medical examiner is going to look around the apartment. He's going to determine by the person's age. If they're taking prescription medication, they might call the doctor, the, uh, the deceased doctor off the prescription medication. And the medical examiner is going to say one of two things. Suspicious death. We're going to call the morgue wagon. He's going down to Bellevue or in the Bronx Jacoby Hospital pending an autopsy. Or, yeah, this person died of natural causes and will turn to the family and say, you can call the funeral home and get your affairs in order. So this cop was working a foot post in a housing project. He was by himself. Some, um, this elderly gentleman died in his apartment. He was good friends with the super. I guess they had coffee every day. The guy didn't come to meet the super. The super goes up to the apartment, opens the door and finds his friend dead in the bed. He calls 911. The cop on the foot post goes up to the 14th or 15th floor. He finds the guy there. He calls the paramedics. It's a Friday night. He's getting the ball rolling. Paramedics come and say, yeah, he's dead. Um, you're going to have to wait for the medical examiner. So it was a Friday night. This cop wanted to go out drinking. He didn't want to get stuck sitting with the DOA because when you, it's called sitting on a DOA. You can get stuck sitting with a DOA eight, 10 hours waiting for the medical examiner to arrive. I mean, a lot of people dying in New York. So by the time this guy gets here, it's going to take some time. So he turns to the paramedics and goes, can't you just take him to the morgue? And they go, no, you know, we can't do that. The only way we can move the body is if he's in public view. And they leave. So about a half hour later, that cop gets on the radio and calls in a cardiac. Well, the same two paramedics happen to still be in the area. They come rushing back up into the building. They come up with all their equipment. And what do they find in the hallway of the building is the same guy that died in his bed is now down on the floor in, in the hallway. And they go, what the hell is this? And now the cop is like, oh, crap. It's the same two paramedics. And he starts tap dancing. And he tells this ridiculous story. You're not going to believe this. After you left, the guy jumped up. He yelled, oh, shit. He ran through the apartment. He died on the floor again. 
They said, he's got rigor mortis. We could tell by the way the body's positioned. You dragged him through the apartment. Sergeant comes. Sergeant looks at it. He knows what it is. And P.S., the cop got suspended. He got he lost 30 vacation days. They put him on a, uh, a year of probation. And then he got transferred out of borough. Had that happened now, he probably would have gotten arrested and lost his job. But back in the good old bad days, he kept his job. So he called the paramedics thinking a different set of paramedics would show up, not the right. same two. And he, they would get, they didn't know the backstory and he would get away with it. it right. The same two guys showed up, but the same two actually just showed up. It, it's, 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 yeah, it's a funny story about that guy. Cause I never liked him. And there's, there's just too much to get into. But um, later in my career, it was about a couple of months before I was retiring, me and my partner were in a precinct. And he saw me and I saw him and I gave him a nod and he turned to another cop. He goes, you believe this guy? I know him 30 years. And he gives me a nod. I go, that doesn't necessarily mean I like you. Right. You know, it was, it was like he made him uncomfortable and I just kind of raised him. My partner's like, oh, I got to hear this story. And then we got in the car and I explained to him the whole thing. Now, you work a significant amount of your career like in the, the car theft, dealing with that. And you broke up an international ring. Yeah, my last 10 years, I was a detective in the NYPD's auto crime division. So anything with chop shops, exporting stolen vehicles out of the country, changing VIN numbers on cars for resale, you name it with cars, I did it. Um, before that, I was always a car guy. I was always getting into car chases, and I was lucky enough to get into the auto crime division. And I did. I worked on a case where we had Chinese nationals. You had a, a Chinese military intelligence officer settled in Brooklyn. He hooked up with a Jamaican uh, car guy in the Bronx, and what he did was he put in an order for 30 Audi A6s a month. What the Jamaican middleman would do is he would farm the orders out to, to steal crews in the Bronx. So for every car that, that was stolen, the Chinese guy paid the Jamaican five grand. The Jamaican paid the car thieves between 500 and 1000 bucks per car. So after the Audis were stolen, they were parked on the street to cool off to make sure they didn't have GPS or, or low jack. The cars would go into this warehouse on Metropolitan Avenue in Brooklyn. Gate would go down. You had Chinese nationals working in the warehouse. So they would roll two stolen Audis per shipping container. They would let the air out of the tires so the cars would sit low. Then they built a frame above it, and they drove two more stolen cars above it. So they were putting between three and four stolen Audis per shipping container. Once the containers were full, they, they, um, they created a fake manifest. They had a trucking company take the containers with the stolen vehicles out to New Jersey, where they were put on a train. They were railed across the United States to Long Beach, California. They were put on cargo ships and sent to Shanghai. So we couldn't figure out, like, why silver and black Audis? And then we figured out it was for government officials, right? So we were on multiple wiretaps. We had um, Chinese NYPD detectives that spoke Mandarin and Cantonese monitoring the Asian wiretaps. Then we had um, Spanish cops and detectives monitoring the car thieves, um, you know, conversations. And we quickly figured out that our car thieves were also in the murder for hire business. So they were talking about whacking this guy and this guy's going to get clipped. And so when we took that case down, in addition to breaking up this international car theft ring, like we solved 15 homicides. Wow. And. Through all this, Vic, you say that you're just generally suspicious of people because of what you've seen. Yeah, I mean, how could I not? You know what I mean? Like growing up where I grew up and then, you know, working a career in law enforcement, there's three sides. There's always three sides to a story. There's what he said, what she said, and the truth is somewhere in the middle, usually. Uh. 
So it's it's not like I look at everybody through you know a, a, a certain lens, but I definitely I will I don't jump to a conclusion right away. You know what I mean? Like I'll listen because someone runs up to you, they're trying to convince you or persuade you that their way of doing something is the way to go, or this person over here is no good. And you know, if you're one of these people that just listen to the first thing, no matter how good it looks, a lot of times you get burned. I tend to just sit sit on the fence and and just kind of weigh it. Another great story you have is, so the three things you can't do as, a, as an officer, you, you, you get you in trouble is if you lose a gun, your shield, or your ID card. And I, this one officer decides to put his gun in the oven so he doesn't forget. Yeah, he lived in a shitty day. You Well, if you lose your gun, shield, or ID card, you lose 30 vacation days. They put you on a year probation. They could fire you for anything during those 365 days. So there was this guy and he lived in a shitty neighborhood and there were a lot of burglaries. He was going out one night. He didn't want to take his gun. So he hit it in the one place he didn't think anybody would look, which was his stove. He goes out cocktail and he comes home. He pre- he's hungry. He preheats his oven to 425 to make himself some frozen pizzas. He sits on the couch. He's channel surfing. And the next thing you know, the gun start, the rounds in, the, in his little slub nose 38 start popping. So he's got to crawl out of his apartment on his hands and knees, makes it to a neighbor's apartment, calls 911 on himself. Emergency service has to come. His gun is blown to bits, so he needs a new gun. You know, he got he lost it. He got suspended in the whole nine yards of the vacation. No, I don't know if he got suspended, but I, I know he, lo- he lost the vacation days and the probation, and he needed a new stove. Wow. Wow. Uh, talk to me about interrogation. What is that like? What have you interrogated people? What do you, what, how do you frame that? Where do you start? Interrogation. What is that like? How do you get trained for that? How do you do it? How, uh, I've never been interrogated before. It's baptism by fire. Um, I think I'm okay at doing interviews and interrogations, but nowhere near like the guys that do it day in and day out. You, you got to realize like in the auto crime division, you're making a lot of arrests. There's a ton of surveillance work. Um, there's a lot of paperwork. It's not like homicide. My old partner, actually, he, um, my old partner did 20 something years in, in Bronx homicide. Actually, he, he hosts, um, he narrates a, a Netflix uh, special called the Times Square Killer. Um, those guys, I mean, it's like they say detectives talk to God. I mean, especially like the homicide guys, you got to listen. You can't bluff. I mean, you know, if you bluff a suspect and he sees through it, you lost him. Wow. You're not for real. He's not, you know what I mean? Sometimes it's it's best to show your hand and say, well, you know, you're going to tell me what you're going to tell me or, you know, you can't threaten. I mean, it's an art. It really is. Some guys are better at it than others. It's incredible. And like lie detecting, you know, machines are those, I know they're not admissible in court. I don't think they are I don't, at one point, but does, does that work with them? Does that, does that help? In New York, I mean, it's not admit to the best of my knowledge, a lie detector isn't admissible in any court, I see. but they still use it as a tool, but not New York. Mm-hmm. I've never seen it used in New York City. Really? Yeah. Amazing. And so now you're, you're retired. You're, um, you're living in Florida, I believe. And mm-hmm. uh, you're writing all these books. What is your process for, for writing, Vic? Well, I mean, and this goes with your show about discipline. You have to be disciplined, especially for a first time writer. And everybody, I'm sure many people say themselves, I'd like to write a book. 
I am I am not talented enough to write in chronological order. I'm kind of scatterbrained. And it's like my books. My books have no beginning, middle, end. They're just a series of short stories of I'll pick a topic, police corruption, and I'll write a chapter crossing over to the dark side and boom. It's stories of cops that I know that went bad or practical jokers, cops that play practical jokes on themselves. For a first-time writer, I wouldn't suggest writing in chronological order because you're going to hit that writer's block. Pick a story. Listen, you know what your book's going to be about, and you know you're going to know the strengths and weaknesses. Pick what you think is going to be your favorite part of the book and just start outlining it and writing things down. And when you hit that bump in the road or writer's block, stop and go on to write something else. And you'll think of something or something will remind you of something and go back to it. But you have to put in the time. I'm a firm believer of your brain works differently at different parts of the day. I believe I work better first thing in the morning and before I go to sleep. Mm. I've just got once my mind is going, I've got too many things in my mind. I just can't pull it together. So pick 20 minutes, a half hour and just keep growing your stories, keep growing your stories and keep at it. You know, don't if you're a first time writer, don't say, all right, tomorrow I'm going to square the whole day away and I'm just going to write. It's going to be a difficult process for you because you're not Stephen King or James Patterson. Mm. You mentioned discipline on the podcast. We talk a lot about it. I lost, um, you know, a lot of weight. People ask me how I say discipline. I mean, I feel like I've got a, um, you know, I, I know a lot about your childhood and, and at any point, did you feel like you were a disciplined person? How did discipline fit in your life and just in your youth in, in, uh, in those formative years? I was and I wasn't. So as a child, I was a wild teenager. I never got in big trouble, but I was always on the cusp of doing something stupid that would land me in trouble. And I remember my, my, the thing that it's my dad had a great work ethic and he always used to tell me that he goes, just do the work. Whatever it is, put in the work and everything else will follow. Mm. He says, if you don't put in the work and, and you do things half-assed, your life's going to fall apart. Just keep at it with the work. And, you know, as a teenager, the way I was heading, I wasn't going to become a member of the New York City Police Department. And my dad, one time I was hanging around with this kid who's no longer with us, who got into trouble and all sorts of things. And my father said one time, what's it going to take? Like, I know you like this kid. He goes, but he's, he's going to, you know, he's going off a cliff and he mm. goes, if you keep hanging out with him, you're going with him. And I knocked it off and, you know, I, I started to take life seriously. And then once I became a member of the New York city police department, you can get sucked into a lot of different ways. Like the New York city police department's got between 35 and 40,000 members at any given time. It's not any, even the smallest of precinct in Staten Island has over a hundred cops. Right. So the average precinct is going to have 200 to 500 cops in it. And there's a lot of opinions and a lot of different people there. And if you fall into the wrong group, you're going to be one of these guys that's going to drive around in circles for 20 years in the same precinct with the same locker, bitching and moaning that no one is going to do anything for you. You can't listen to those people. You know, you set out what you want to do, what your mission is going to be. And there's going to be roadblocks. There's going to be people trying to slow you down. You just ignore it and you just keep you put in the work and you push through it. But the dedication, I, you know, my first cousin in Queens there, one ended up being a fireman, one ended up being a, an officer. I mean, it just seemed there's like a lot of trend back then to, to do that. But it just, um, it just seems to me that what you, what you experience and what you see and you're exposed, you tell this other story of 
of break. A, a guy was killing his killing his girlfriend up on a, a floor, and he saw the kid come down the stairs and say he's killing her, and he had to go yeah. there and unload. And and the first thing the and he had a knife, and the knife left his hand. And the first thing the other officer said is, "I hope I don't get in trouble for shooting somebody that that doesn't have a weapon." You know, it's just, it just seems, it's just, you're exposed to so much stuff, Vic, and it just seems to me that discipline just plays such a major role in that and how you have to follow the regulations and you have to make sure, like you said, you don't get in trouble. Well, there's a process. So people ask me like, are you traumatized? You know, do you lose sleep? Do you have nightmares? No, I've seen a lot of bad things. I'm well aware they're bad things, but you know, to be successful in that line of work, I think there's two things at play. I think, A, it's a personality type that gravitates to that type of job. And to be successful in that type of job, because I've seen cops lose their minds, mm. really. I mean, like, they're just not the same after something bad happens to them. you got to compartmentalize things and say, like, 9-11. By the time that rolled around, I'm saying to myself, you know, all right, this is really bad. I've seen really bad before. You know, I can't run away from this. I have to put my head down. I have to get through this and just keep pushing through it and everything will be fine. You know what I mean? You can't because if what's the sense of falling apart? It's not going to help you. Right. As a matter of fact, it could get you in a lot of trouble. It could get you hurt. So, yeah, I mean, I've been through the like the, the story you just laid out from I, I've walked into homicides like right after they're done with the suspect sitting right there, you know, and it's like, all right, this is bad, but I, I've got to push through this. God, another story while you were talking was about this man. He was on crack, and his his mother started yelling at him, so he he kills her, and then goes into the city to get rid of the evidence, and leaves the door open, thinking somebody will come, and he shows back up, and nobody showed up, and he ends, you know, he ends up confessing, and is it's just fake. He's just exposed to this as a as a police officer. It's just it's just so much. Well, that's what I was telling you before. When someone starts telling you a story, just just listen to them. Right. People are going to show you who they are eventually. You know what I mean? It's just it's human nature. I mean, unless it's like Hannibal Lecter or what was that guy? What was that guy? That famous real estate developers guy first Durst, Seymour oh, Durst. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that guy. I mean, cold. <laughs> I mean, talk about a guy that was able to mask who he really was and fool multiple people and, and hurt and you know ruin the lives of a lot of people, but. You just got to, you know, you got to keep everybody at arm's length until you're ready to let them in. You know what I mean? Wow. And how does that roll over? Like, uh, you know, you have to, you're, you're leaving the force and like you said, you're, re you're retired. And uh, I mean, how, is it easy to acclimate to become a civilian after you leave the New York City, you know, police department after 20 years? It was weird because, it, and, and I write in one of my books, a 20-year career with the NYPD is a, is a great merry-go-round. You got your ups, you got your downs. Mm. You got to know when to get off. Mm. You have to know when to get off. And a lot of NYPD members, they, everybody, no matter how good you are at what you do, is going to outlive your usefulness in the department. You just are. Supervisors are going to change. Policy is going to change. And if you don't get off that merry-go-round when you should, CBIS is going to throw you on your head. Hmm. And I was working in a unit for 10 years. I was the go-to guy. And I said, you know, my supervisors are changing. Like, I never had a shitty boss in my NYPD career till, till towards the end of my career. I was working for a guy I didn't particularly like. And I said, that's, all, that, that's a warning sign. Like, things are changing. Hmm. And I just said, you know what? I can do something else. As much as I like this, it's time to go. 
And I got off and it was like a game of musical chairs. Like I got off and I didn't know where my seat was in life. Like I had all this spare time. And then all of a sudden, like I wasn't sleeping because I went from different hours and stuff to having all this time on my hands. And I said, I need a change. So I moved down to Del Boca Vista down here in Florida. Um, I got a job with a police department down here. And that was a mistake because it was a great department. But I went from being a detective to an America's largest police department to an episode of Reno 911. Mm. Like everything was different down here. You know, it's a young man's game to be on the road. And here I am in my early 40s going on domestics again and DUIs, which I hadn't done in 15, 20 years. So that was rough on me. And it's different. Like I remember down here in Florida, I spent half a day learning how to wrestle an alligator. I'm like, can't we just shoot these things? And like, oh no. And I was like, man, if this was New York, we would shoot them. So it was a different, it was different. And I said, you know what, this isn't for me. So I, you know, gracefully bowed out. And that's when I got into writing. <laughs> Another great story about a, an officer that was chasing a, you know, a, 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 uh, a prospect, a perpetrator, and, and jumped into the Bronx River, which is um, not the cleanest of them. And he got the nickname Aquaman, but he was able yeah. to. Yeah. That chase went on forever. Like in New York, the, the dirty little secret with stolen cars is when we were never allowed to chase stolen cars. Did we did it? Yeah, all the time. But if you get into a car chase and as long, and this is when I was active, I don't know what goes on now, but 15 years ago, if, if you got into a car chase and nobody got hurt, no harm, no foul. If you crashed the radio car, God forbid a civilian got hurt or bad, or God forbid the bad guy got seriously injured, they're going to take your head off. So that chase, yeah, it, it went around. It, it ended by the by the Bruckner. There's a drawbridge there, and the guy jumped into the Bronx River to swim from the 4-1 to the 4-3, and a 4-3 guy <laughs> jumped into the, into the Bronx River like, oh. You know, all he had to do, the guy wasn't going anywhere. Like, you know, there were cops on either side of this thing. And he swam in and pulled the guy out. And he was Aquaman. Another great story down to Hunts Point, which is, you know, industrial. But at night it gets a little, you know. A little, oh, it's all pimps and hoes. Yeah, at night it's all pimps and hoes. When I was a kid, same thing. And you pulled somebody over with a BMW and it was a lawyer. And he tried to, like, uh, you know, scare you. And you were just able to turn that completely around. Yeah, Hunts Point is an industrial area in the Bronx. And then when the light, you know, after dark and the, and the factories close, it's pimps and hoes. And um, I saw this BMW. I think he had a taillight out. I pull him over. It's an attorney. And he just starts giving me shit. You know, I know what you're doing. You're shaking the trees because you see a BMW in an impoverished area. And he's got a crackhead in the car with him. So I wrote him a ticket. When I went back to give him the ticket, he starts getting mouthy and he wants my he wants my name and shield. He's going to give me a civilian complaint. This is an abuse of authority. I said, no, I'm going to show you an abuse of authority. Get out. I made him get out of the car. My partner made the prostitute get out of the car. And I said, go ahead and make the complaint. I go, my partner's writing down her name, date of birth, pimp, corner she hangs out on. I said, I get that civilian complaint. I says, I'm going to look you up in the phone book and I'm going to call your wife. I'm going to tell her what you were doing down here. And I go, and if you're not listed in the phone book, I said, I swear to God, I will pick this crackhead up, drive her to your house up. I think it was Hartsdale or Scarsdale. And I'll knock on the door and tell her what you would and have her explain to your wife what you were doing down here. He got on his knees. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm like, all right. I guess we understand each other. Absolutely amazing, Vic. Absolutely amazing. What do the public need to know about about the police. What do we need to know that 
you know, how hard you work and how you have to deal with all this stuff. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. Let them do their jobs. Right, um, right now, there's a, it's almost like an orchestrated campaign that, you know, cops are rotten and they don't let them do their jobs. And I mean, I mean, I'm out of New York now 15 years and, you know, I, I see on television what's happened to Times Square again. And it's just, it's sad. You know, I, I feel so bad for the New Yorkers because they deserve better. You know what I mean? Let the men and women in the New York City Police Department do their jobs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They can turn it around. They can turn it around within a year if they let them. I mean, as a kid, I just remember once Giuliani came in, everything changed. I mean, all, oh, yeah, everything changed. It was like flicking a switch. Yeah, yeah. As a kid, he had the right people in place. He he had. Rudy, Rudy's an interesting character because Rudy, people forget that he was a a prosecutor for the U.S. Attorney's Office of the Southern District. And Rudy prosecuted, Rudy crippled the mafia. Yes. I mean, the Pizza Connection case, the Commission case, the Windows case, countless others. So Rudy knew from a prosecutor's standpoint what needed to be done to put people away. And he was smart enough to listen to some of these people in the NYPD that had a plan in place. And go after quality of life crimes. Like early in my NYPD career, if I was on patrol in a precinct and I grabbed on a busy, say it was a busy Friday night, and I bring in a guy that's selling crack on a corner, I catch him with a brown paper bag with 30 vials of crack, right? The desk officer is going to lay into me. Great. Great. Now you just pulled a radio car off the road for this guy with 30 vials of crack. Now the supervisor is going to have to pick up jobs. Great. And then you know what? I might not be in a radio call for a week. They might put me on a foot post. But what they realized is if you grab that guy selling crack, fingerprint him and run him through the system, that guy's wanted for a burglary. The guy you catch pissing in the hallway instead of kicking him in the ass, bringing him through the system, that guy's wanted for a robbery. Mm. So it started taking bad guys off the playing field. You know what I mean? And now this whole ridiculous thing with no bail, I mean, it's a license to steal. It's, right. it's just putting people right back out there. You also talk about the buy a buy and bust operation, which is similar to what you kind of described there. Can you tell us what that is? Yeah. So I worked in the Manhattan North Narcotics Division. So Manhattan North Narcotics Division, Giuliani beefed it up. Like narcotics divisions pre-Giuliani, you had anywhere between 20 and 30 detectives. When Giuliani came in, each borough got something like 200 detectives, right? So say for argument's sake, each team was about between seven and eight detectives. So say for argument's sake, me and you come into work one day and our sergeant comes up to us. He goes, uh, Hey, John, Joe, you guys are getting on. Getting on means we're going to take the arrest for the day. He's going to hand you and I a hundred dollar bill. We're going to run to the local deli. We're going to break that hundred into fives, tens, twenty ones. And we're going to give that money. We're going to, we're going to photocopy that money. It's called pre-recorded buy money. So we're going to have the serial numbers of all the denominations. This way, once we arrest somebody for a hand-to-hand transaction, and they have the money on them, it builds a stronger case than just the the undercover's um, identification. We're going to give the undercover's money. The undercover's and the detectives have what's called a TAC plan. A TAC plan is a list of locations and what they sell on each corner. You don't want to send your undercover into an angel dust location looking for heroin. That's a quick way for him to get hit with a bat. (laughs) So you want to send them because these undercover's, they're not street people. They don't hang out on these corners. So you want them just to blend in, Put the money out, get what they got to get, and get out of there. So me and you are going to be in a, 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 in a vehicle with a sergeant. Three or four of our other you know, co-workers are going to be in other cars, and the undercovers are going to be in a separate car. 
The undercovers are going to get out of the car. They're going to go to the corner. One undercover is going to make the transaction. And then the two that are with them are called ghosts. The ghosts lay back and watch to make sure nobody screws with the undercover. And they might pick up on a stash location or maybe the money gets handed off to another individual. Once that undercover buys and steps off, you, you want whoever's dealing drugs to sell to another couple of people so you don't burn the undercover so it's never sure of who I just sold to that guy and the cops rolled in on me. Hmm. You want him to make a couple of other transactions. Once that's been established, the undercover will go over the radio and tell everybody the description. We're told move in. And that's when the fun begins. It, it was like it was like the rodeo. We'd roll up to a busy corner like 110 and Lex or 105 and 3rd and, and uh, Spanish Harlem. And people would be throwing shit up in the air and running in different directions. Wow. I mean, you were in a foot chase. So once you, you catch your individuals, you call for the P-Van, an unmarked panel truck would pull up. You'd load them in and you'd go to the next set and the next set until you fill that van up with drug dealers and then you'd bring them into the precinct and then it was like a mass processing wow. thing. So you and I would have between five and 10 arrests each on a buy and bust operation. Amazing. Very, very Oh, efficient. but narcotics sucked. I mean, you were always, so the people dealing drugs in the street, you're not locking up Pablo Escobar. You're locking up crackheads and heroin addicts that are selling to support their habit. Right. And they live outdoors. So I always had a cold. Because you, 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 you're going through their pockets. You're up close and personal with street people. You're always getting sick. You're terrified of getting stuck with a needle. I always would ask them, listen, tell me now if you got a spike on you. Because you don't want to get AIDS or hepatitis C going through their sock and you get hit with a needle. So there was a lot of hidden dangers in narcotics. With the advent, I wonder now, you haven't been there for 15 years with technology. I wonder how technology helps in, in any of that. Oh, a lot of things. So the recording in the old days, like a Kel and a Kel receiver, a Kel is a device that, that'll transmit or record your tra um, your uh, your voice. Nowadays, I mean, when I was retiring, they had something that looked like a keychain that, that that was a digital recorder. It was so small. I got, and that's 15 years ago. And in, in auto crime, I remember when I was retiring, they have these things mounted on the back of police cars. They look like black boxes. They're cameras. Hmm. They're called plate readers. So as you drive by, that plate reader snaps a photo of, of your license plate and runs it. And they can set the parameters in the police car of to run the car if it's stolen, run the registered owner to see if the car is registered, wow. properly insured. Do you have a warrant? You know, things like that. So plate readers, now, that's how they track. Like, you'll hear, how did they know this guy made it up to North Carolina? Because of plate readers. Mm -hmm. Absolutely incredible. Vic Ferrari, what motivates you? I'm a capitalist pig. Um, I like money. I don't want to be rich. I don't want to be famous, but I, I do enjoy money. That's why I write these books. Mm -hmm. I, I like to keep busy. Um, I'm always doing something, be it renovating my house or painting something or writing books. So I, that work, that work ethic that I got from my father. Mm. I mean, every day is a good day above ground. And how do you measure success? By my Amazon book sale. No, I, as long as I'm happy, you know what I mean? As long as I'm happy and things are going all right, I'm happy. I, I can't re recommend. Thank you so much for your time today. I can't recommend it enough. That I only read your your last one. I look forward to reading the others. You're working on another, I assume. Yeah, I'm writing another NYPD based book filled with short stories. I don't have a title for it. The two things I struggle with is the title of a book, except for Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's Auto Crime Division, because 
that's my 10 years in auto crime. But my other books, the, the, I always struggle with the title and what the book is about, even though I just spent a year writing about it. And when you write, Vic, is it, is it all on paper? No, no, no. I bang away on my Mac. On your Mac, yeah. I see. Oh, I can't even read my own handwriting. I write in hieroglyphics. They couldn't beat that out of me in Catholic high school. Yeah, yeah. How you define that, Vic? Thanks so much for this. So, how can we get in touch with you? I know you got Facebook, you got Twitter, and of course, you got all your books are on Amazon. Yeah, just go to Amazon, go to books, and type in Vic Ferrari. All my paperbacks are ten bucks, and ebook download ten nine uh, two ninety nine. They make great ten dollars stocking stuffers. And if you want to get in touch with me on Amazon, um, Amazon on Twitter and Instagram, it's at Vic Ferrari five zero. Vic V I C, of course, Ferrari F E R R A R I. Vic, thanks so much for your time. I. I, I... Really, really appreciate it. I really enjoyed your book. I look forward to, to new ones coming, and uh, maybe one day we'll go uh, grab a cup of coffee. I'd like that, Joey. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I appreciate it. You be well. Take care. Thank you for listening and or viewing Joey Pinn's Discipline Conversations. Please share this episode with one or two of your friends who you think may benefit from the episode. Our website, www.joeypins.com. There you find lots of resources and you could join our mailing list. Please follow us on all our social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Podcast information, the video version of our podcast is on YouTube. Please subscribe. Audio is on all major podcasting platforms. Please follow them. And if you like it, please consider giving five-star rating. Would really appreciate that. Would you like to financially support the podcast? You can go to our Patreon site. Consider $5, 10 or $20 a month. There's all kind of plans that we have there. There's like a one-time payment. What is this podcast episode worth to you? $25, $50, $100, $500, $1,000, $5,000. You be the judge. You can go to our PayPal account to do that as well. Thank you again for listening or watching Joey Pinn's Discipline Conversation.